Thanks for all the attendees dialing in. Sorry for the slight delay. We were already looking ahead for the plans for what are we doing in 2021, the first day of October, and then uh, technology sent uh, a curveball our way. But don't worry about that. We are all ready for a fantastic Southeast Asia Connect webinar. And as you can see from my background, it's Mid-Autumn Festival. So happy Lantern Day to everybody. Um, so uh, yeah, good. So um, let's right dive into it because today's episode is fantastic, not just because of our phenomenal guests, but especially because of the topic. Today we will talk about fintech, especially in Southeast Asia. Is it more Wall Street or Silicon Valley? We have Kelvin from Funding Societies and we have Pin from uh, Lighthouse. So fantastic experts in this, in this field. Um, my name is Lars Frudisch. I'm your host today, uh, together with uh, Chris, the man. Um, I'm originally, um, a, used to be a journalist, now a professional storyteller, worked with over 300 uh, startups. And I remember the days when Funding Society just got started. So, so great to have uh, Kelvin back here. Um, so we'll start with uh, the topic. So Chris, knock it out of the park with introducing what today's episode is about. So definitely, again, apologies for the delay, but well worth the wait because we have two absolute superstars in the fintech industry here with us today. My name is Chris Tran. I'm the head of Northridge Partners. We work with the Southeast Asian entrepreneur to raise capital, grow their businesses and exit. On to today's topic. Obviously, this year has been very extraordinary, but fintech in Southeast Asia is actually the only sector set to nearly double the funding in 2020 compared to 2019. In fact, would you believe that there are actually 35 companies that are fintech with a valuation of over 100 million? And of course, the biggest IPO story of this year will be the IPO of Ant Financial with a rumored IPO market cap of 250 billion. Yes, that's right. One quarter of a trillion it would actually rank as the world's fifth largest bank. Fintech is not only impossible to ignore, but we would say that fintech is too important to not understand. And in this webinar, we will talk about, number one, whether smaller players be able to compete for market share against giants such as Grab, Gojek, Zalo with its Zalo Pay, Ovo and others. The revenge of traditional banks. Digital banking and what does it mean in 2020? Embedded finance and what's next on the horizon? And according to our usual formula, forget the money, we have Pin Laujindaku, Vice President of Lightspeed Venture Partners. Walking around with funds under management of $10 billion, she's joined Lightspeed in 2020 with the job of helping and focusing in on Southeast Asian expansion, primarily in consumer and fintech. Prior to Lightspeed, Pin worked alongside founders across all life cycles in China and India, most notably in companies such as Flipkart, the little one that got sold to Walmart, Ola, Policy Bazaar, Razorpay, and Booksin. For Build the Dream, we have everyone's favorite, Kelvin Teo the co-founder and group CEO of Funding Societies. As the region's largest SME lending platform, 
funding societies has written loans of more than USD $1.3 billion and an amazing NPL of less than 2%. Kelvin was selected as one of the top 200 fintech influencers in Asia, appointed as co-chairperson for the Marketplace Lending Committee of Singapore Fintech Association. Kelvin has spoken at major conferences such as Lend at Shanghai, Bao Hainan, and Money 2020. He has also been featured on Bloomberg, BBC, and Business Times. Prior to this, Kelvin served as a consulting professional at KKR, McKinsey, and Accenture. And I'm also very proud to mention that against the trend, Kelvin did finish his MBA at Harvard Business School. Lars, to get things revving up, today's poll. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm starting with it. I'm still just a little bit uh, um, confused about your background. We all were used for the last eight episodes about your kind of dungeon-like dark space with the robots in the, in the back and a couple of children normally coming in. What surprise do you have for us in store today? <laughs> well, it's great to be back in the office. <laughs> Good. Okay, so today's poll, to just get started a little bit on the topic deep dive, um, due to fintech, within the next five years, what do you think? What's the percentage of traditional banks that will completely disappear or at least become significantly less important? 100%, at least 50, at least 20, or eh, at the end of the day, next five years, not so much, no change. So how big is the impact on how fintech will change the banking landscape as we know it? Please see what you have for us. Chris, what's your take? At least 20%. 20%, okay. Pin, what's your take? Same. He copied my answer. <laughs> no, Christian really stir troubles for the fintech players. But I think that's around 20%, not at least 20%. <laughs> <Okay>. so, <laughs> Let's close it and see what we have in store. So let's see what's, what's the result. Ash, the angel behind the screen. Let's close the poll and see what's the result. At least 20 seems to be good. And it's interesting to nearly have an even between at least 50% and uh, no change. So that, that's, that's, well, okay. So um, at least, well, if, if I would be a bank and if I see at least 20%, of my business disappearing, I would be up in arms. So let's talk about that uh, from the investment perspective. Off to you, Chris. All right. Well, let's go to the $10 billion woman, PIN, and provide an update and uh, overview of Lightspeed Venture Partners. PIN, Lightspeed is obviously a big name, but can you tell us what differentiates Lightspeed Ventures from, say, other investors? Sure. So I guess Lightspeed, uh, for those of you who don't know us, uh, it's an early stage focused firm. Um, we primarily invest in venture uh, and in our industry, we're actually really considered a new kid on the block, um, having just been established in the year 2000. We're a bit more famous for our contrarian bets like you know Snapchat in the era of Facebook, Oyo in the era of Airbnb. And as a firm, we really just have two very core principles that we want to differentiate ourselves on. One is to be there for founders, not just in money, but also in time, share and resources um, so you know uh, we just think the conventional wisdom of spraying and praying is could make money but it's absolutely unfair for founders so every investment professional you know will go really deep in the trenches with the founders and so we keep our 
um, ratio of our investment professional to investment portfolio company extremely high. And we're very proud that we are one of the best ones in the market. And then the second thing um, for, for us is we want to build a global network. Um, I think the traditional venture um, industry is split into two schools. One is, you know, completely focused on being local. The other is being um, building a global network. And we are of that camp. And uh, for us, we, we find it's a huge competitive advantage for entrepreneurs um, to have access to not just business relationships, uh, but most importantly, I feel the best practices and the mistakes that our whole Lightspeed ecosystem um, has accumulated over the years. So I think that's... Um, how we differentiate ourselves. Wonderful. So high conviction, um, global, uh, contrarian. Great. And, you know, how did you get into this game? Um, you know, I found the story quite uh, in when we were getting to prepare for today uh, around being born in Thailand, educated in the US, you had a journey in China and India, and now that you're back here uh, and you speak not only your native Thai, but also Mandarin. So can you tell us about your journey into Lightspeed? Yeah. Um, so I'm originally from Bangkok. I grew up, you know, around the whole, you know, Southeast Asia is really my home. I spent um, considerable amount of time here in Singapore. Um, and I think my journey to this ecosystem really started when I was, I started my career as a management consultant in the Bay Area. Uh, this was at a time before Instagram was famous. Uber just launched in the Valley. So you kind of guess my age. Um, I really quickly realized the possibility of tech innovation, right? Um, and I just made, made it my personal mission to help drive that change someday in my home country where I feel like I had the most competitive advantage. Um, and so, you know, I tried my hand really on different roles, trying to try to get a feel of what I, how I like to contribute. So, I moved back here quite quickly um, and joined a company called Grab. It was a very small company back then um, before, you know, moving into a growth private equity firm, uh, Tiger Global, um, to venture into the India and Chinese ecosystem. And finally, I find myself most energized um, just doing early stage investment in my whole region, right, Southeast Asia. So that's how I'm here. Fantastic. Thank you for that. And, you know, I'd like to delve uh, a little bit into the contrarian. I, you know, I, I find it quite interesting. Snapchat in the area of Facebook and Instagram, where, you know, a lot of people just thought the story was over um, and spectacularly pinned Duoto when everyone thought that uh, the game was over between uh, uh, Tencent JD and the Ali camp. You know, a little bit more, please, around the fund's contrarian approach in, in deciding your investments. Yeah. So I think there is a combination of two things. I think one is building a local team. Um, so we, we're, we're, we're a strong believer of that. And the, uh, and the other thing is just being first principles, right? I think with these two in mind, you can probably find big insertion, big enough insertion points uh, into market that might have been, you know, spoke or other people think it's spoken for. So for example, you know, um, all your rooms in the era of Airbnb, everybody in the US think Airbnb is the thing. But if you look at emerging economy, there's so many good, cheap, second tier hotels, right? And that's only because most of our investors um, that we've built as a team live and brief that local understanding. And then because we're just first principle about it, yes, if there is, then there is really no room for Airbnb. There is still more room to aggregate second tier, third tier hotels. And so we'll make a bet to, in a 19 year old boy 
who shared the same belief as us, didn't think he wanted to go to school or business school for that matter, Kelvin. Um, so, you know, that's how, that's how we roll. So, yeah. Fantastic. It's quite interesting because if we look back, uh, we had a lot of sort of, you know, Western clones and at least over the last five years in Southeast Asia, there's been a lot of talk around, hey, this was China, you know, back then and now we're looking at Chinese clones. So perhaps in a way, we're not really learning our lesson about truly local first, but we can get into that a little bit later. And within that contrarian thinking, you know, what excites you about fintech in particular when we look at you know, one of the first topics that we wanted to discuss today, is there really any space for some of the smaller players out there? Uh, when you've got obviously these big guys around with big audience reach, lots of money to spend, where do you see the scope for the smaller players? Um, for sure. I, I think there, you know, I feel, I feel like in emerging market, just, um, there's just so much work that we can do. I, I, it's always the mentality should somehow shift should have already shifted. It has just begun to shift towards like, this is not about fighting each other for the same pie. We're an emerging market for a reason, right? It's about growing the pie together. Um, so I definitely think there is space for smaller players. Um, you know, Grab as a firm is doing so many things. Um, they can't out execute at every, on, every, on every aspect. Um, they have decided to go down say the wallet path and that leads the non-wallet, multiple non-wallet players um, as, as, a, as a potential possibility to explore. Um, so I, I, I definitely believe um, there are lots of um, interesting spaces in FinTech, um, you know, going from, you know, EKYC players to, you know, just being a um, backend for banks um, to trying to be a partner with a bank to do the front end uh, for them. Yeah. So there's a good story really about being local and having a real grip on the market and understanding that there's so much growth in the market and various segments to be done. Um, so that's good news for the small players. What about, of course, no one feels sorry for them, but I guess I will try it. The big old banks. And, you know, will we actually see revenge of the banks? The survey, if that's to be, you know, accurate, says that one in five will die. So what will the other four or the five do, a la revenge of the traditional banks? Um, I want to call it revenge. Again, I go back to a mindset shift to coexist, right? To leverage fintech players who are way better than themselves at innovating, taking risks, like making experiments um, much younger than themselves, right? Um, to, in terms of their understanding of the consumer. So I'd say, you know, uh, uh, I consider it as a more of a, a cooperative approach um, it's the it's what the other four banks should do and will continue to well, I'm not sure I quite agree there. That will be a cooperative approach, but maybe something like a cooperation. But um, maybe, maybe let's 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 move to another segment, um, which is really interesting when we talk about legislation around open banking, uh, around fostering this environment, and you know, worth touching upon. And and you know, you mentioned that this was uh, an area which was exciting. Um, a little bit about sort of the pro-regulation stance that we've got here in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, so in addition, well, I think the most exciting thing, I, 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 I'm most excited that young talent are coming out to do startup in the first place. And then next to that is the regulatory changes that is happening, um, particularly in emerging markets like Indonesia, Thailand, um, uh, Singapore, obviously, but that was just a take. 
taken. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, stuff around, and, and I think there, there's just a lot of learnings that they have been able to um, adapt and learn for other, from other markets. China, India specifically, um, has influenced a lot of our regulatory um, outlook and preparedness um, for the new wave of fintech. So I think we as a region benefit from that. We've been um, able to learn from others. Yeah, so we've been able to learn from others. Um, there, it's pros and cons. It works both ways. I think it prevent, uh, potentially um, make them a lot more. It, well, I, I'll say the pros, right, which is um, openness to bringing the tech, the giants um, to the table. So the banks who largely, for large part of Southeast Asia's, you know, family run um, or government run. That's just two type big family and big government entities bringing them to the table to see um, and comply with um, certain, uh, 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 you know, change, regulatory changes that could benefit um, fintech players, right? So I think that's one of them. Um, and it's, 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 it's major because a lot of this uh, in, encourages um, just the whole ecosystem to flourish, right? Without any of that, then it's always, it's fintech is a, Kevin Manol, this is the best, right? Fintech is such a regulatorily shackled uh, environment. Um, so the fact that the leaders are, you know, coming out to say, hey, there will be changes. We think that there needs to be more openness. We need more consumer data privacy or, you know, um, uh, um, malleability with systems. I think that's great for the ecosystem overall. Yeah, no matter who. Thank you, Pin, for uh, getting us to a racing start. And now, last, time to hear from Kelvin. Yeah, um, um, Kelvin, I'm, uh, you know, we're, we know each other for, for a while, but uh, in the interest of everybody on the, on the call, um, and uh, Chris was alluding to that, um, unlike Mark Zuckerberg, you finished Harvard. So what made you do that and successfully start funding societies? Uh, what got you started on uh, this very successful venture? First and foremost, I'm not as smart as Mark, so I had to study, so I had to finish my education. But I think um, also having Asian parents, uh, the option of dropping out wasn't really there for us. Uh, so that decision was made very quickly. But I think, to be fair, we, were also, we also did feel that in 2014, 2015, frankly, fintech was no, almost non-existent, so it was very nascent in Southeast Asia. I think we were very fortunate to be in the US at that point in time. And given that, that uh, it was still very early in Southeast Asia and it has, been gone, has gone through a certain level of developments in the US, um, we actually find that staying back in the US actually did help, in, help us in terms of thinking through the business model, what makes sense, what does not make sense, especially when we adapt to Southeast Asia. So we're very fortunate that um, using or slash abusing uh, Harvard Business School's uh, brand name, we, we managed to visit to all the major fintech players that have uh, so far uh, uh, finding circle on deck, common bond, so and so forth. And because they thought they they, they think that they were, we were interviewing and we did not misrepresent ourselves in any way, they they answered all the questions that we want we needed to have it answered uh, in in the, the designing the business. And we were very fortunate to subsequently meet one of our very first advisor, Terry uh, Terry C, was a chief risk officer of Dianrock at China, and that has helped us to figure out hey what has worked in US, what has uh, uh, worked in in China as well as not worked, and how does it how do we adapt, adapt to Southeast Asia? So. We were very fortunate that we, we somehow were able to start finding societies in Singapore while doing our masters at the US. So basically we, we, we started working at around 8 p.m. 
also at Boston time, which is basically 8 a.m. Singapore time, and then work to 3, 4 a.m. Uh, Boston time because of the 12 time difference, and which translate into 3, 4 p.m. Singapore time, so that we've, we are physically, it feels like we are there for the team, and we manage by Skype, uh, internet banking, and whatnot, right? So, so we were very fortunate that it works out, and uh, even more crazy was that during summer holidays, um, we were fortunate, it, something that started off as a project uh, received a seed round of funding from Alpha JWC, and uh, after a pitch and uh, and we thought it was crazy because why would anyone fund, a fund some students, especially when they're not even physically around. Um, but I thought what was even uh, more more crazy was, was after the seed round, um, Sequoia saw the news and they reached out to us through, um, through our classmates and um, they wanted to offer us uh, our Series A until they realized that we were still in school. Um, so, so we were great, very grateful that they were willing to, to wait for us uh, until we graduated and that's, that's when we have, we were, so we will be able to raise both our seed and series A by the time we graduate, graduated. So leveraging on the expertise and knowledge that we have learned from US and some of our previous local experience in Southeast Asia as well as the capital that we have raised allowed us to have made a pretty good head start uh, in Southeast Asia. So we're really grateful about for the support that uh, and for, for the funds as well as being in the right place at the right time. Fantastic. And um, to take that from your playbook, uh, a call out to our attendees, please post your questions in the Q&A section. Um, anything goes, we still decide if we ask that. I'm sure uh, Calvin will not spill the secret sauce of what makes Funding Society successful today. But please post your questions, upvote other questions for the public Q&A section later. Um, so you, you look at two markets, specifically China and the US before. Uh, and they're large, more homogeneous markets, but you chose Southeast Asia. Uh, 650 million people, it, it, it's massive, but very different in, in terms of culture, regulation, purchase power, market maturity. How did you manage, or what's your strategy on scaling in a market like Southeast Asia? So actually, I, that, that's a really good point. In fact, when when we, before we started uh, Funding Societies, um, we, uh, Reno and I were just evaluating um, whether should we even start. And the three key criteria that we had in mind was, number one, is this a big enough opportunity? Is it worth doing? If it's going to be a small startup, that okay, not worth our time, right? Let's do something better. So, so is it a big opportunity? Number two is that, is that, is it something that we're passionate about? And because both of us, some of our earlier history, we, we, are, we do feel a lot for SMEs as the underdogs. And that's why it's something that we, we know where we, we want to do. And then the third one is really, having the path to be number one, um, even uh, and what are key success factors and whether we possess them to be number one in the future, right? And one of which was really because of the fragmentation of the market in Southeast Asia that allowed us to think that we have a good path to be, to, to be number one there. Because at that point in time, the reality is that not many people understand FinTech in Southeast Asia. Yet at the same time, there are even fewer people who understand the various local markets. And we have deliberately chosen a very localized business, i.e. SME financing. So it's very different from payments or consumer financing, whereby local nuances may not be as important. But SME financing, the local nuances are extremely important. So we basically used, took advantage of the fact that it's such a fragmented market that to the extent that we understand the market and can be more hyper-local than the other players, we will be able to, to enter faster, penetrate faster, and hold our turf, even in the face of strong competitions that we know will come at some point in time. So we were very, very fortunate that in our that uh, the thesis worked out. In fact, when we did our very first pitch video in 2015, it was which is turns out which is a really childish video on hindsight, but it was our very first first pitch video. I said, hey, we will be number one in Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia within uh, in the next few years, and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, in 2017, 2018, we basically met everything that we have said, uh, said because, and so we were very fortunate that the thesis worked out. So the fragmentation of market has also enabled local entrepreneurs to really thrive in a more localized business. 
Okay, so that was 2017. So since then, what, what kept you going? What's left to achieve? Once we achieve, we'll do another video. But I think, <laughs> I think that there are really three, three things that we are really looking at. So, so we are very fortunate that in the last, from being one of the latecomers to the market, we became a, a small market leader. And now we are about three times the size of our closest competitor when it comes to SME uh, digital financing. And I think that there are really three things that we are really looking to build up further. I think number one is how can we, within the current market, really deepen our position further? Um, because frankly, we are just scratching the surface of, of SME financing and um, we have spent three, four years really just sharpening our swords and sharpening our tools, right? Uh, because it's a business that takes time to achieve and figure out the product market and risk model fit. Because a loan takes time to mature and only you'll get the data from the repayments and then only you can, you can start, uh, start uh, iterating it. So it takes time and the last few years is something that we have been spending time to, to build, to figure out product market and risk model fit. And I think now a large part of it is really deepening within each of the market based on what we have figured out. That's number one. I think number two is also uh, evolving our business model. So we have, uh, we have been following the US, European and uh, uh, Chinese, India market and we realized that uh, peer to business lending is a great place to start, it's a terrible place to end. So that's also why in the last two, three years, we have been actively evolving our business model uh, to, be, to be beyond what the track conventional platform has been doing. Um, so that's something that we're actively continuously doing. Uh, that's number two. One of the example is that we have created, uh, basically offer a software as a service proposition for the SMEs as a way to digitalize and of, create, of course, increase our competitive mode within the space, uh, similar to what Greensill and Opnov are already doing. So that's the second one. Uh, evolving the business model. And the third one is, of course, um, and of course, sorry, as part of the whole business model evolution, we have also applied for the wholesale digital bank license in Singapore as a consortium with uh, SP, Xiaomi, as well as uh, AMTD. And I think that we do stand a reasonable chance of getting a license in Singapore. And I think the final part is really how can we expand beyond Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia? Um, so after entering the three markets in 2015 to 2017, we have been actively consolidating and our position building our organizational capabilities um, in, in the first three years. After, uh, uh, after taking a break, now we are ready to enter into new markets. So, so I think really geographical expansion, deepening current markets as well as business model evolution will be the next path for us. Lars, I think you're on mute. So what's next, first Thailand or first Vietnam? <laughs> we, we, we we'll let you know once once we once we have launched. <laughs> <laughs> there are only that many normal options, but I'm sure uh, you also look at the unnormal ones. Um, how did uh, COVID work for you? Because um, as a non-expert, uh, I, I look at it from two sides. One is um, a lot of digital transformation has been forced on industries, on players, on SMEs. People that were afraid of anything suddenly had no choice but look at alternative means in the digital space, and it's a massive accelerator. The other part of me is looking at it like, okay, economic downturn, uh, your default rate must be through the roof, um, and the government is, is putting a lot of money in the industry, so is your offer still that valid, or has it been flooded and kind of cannibalized by, by the government? So I think that if I, if I just crystallize what are the impact of COVID when it comes to uh, fintech uh, lending, because fintech, there are many verticals and frankly, the impact is quite different for each of the vertical, right? If I just look at purely on a lending perspective, effectively, there are really three, three implications, right? One is that on a borrower side, there's an increase in defaults or at least increase in risk, even though there's an increase in demand as well. So the response to that is how can we actually cherry pick the deals and potentially charge a higher interest rate to reflect the risk of that. And that's what, uh, what has enabled us to actually recover our 
from a financial performance perspective, recover to pre-COVID level very quickly in June, July, right after the lockdown has opened. Um, in fact, now we are just outpacing what we uh, if our performance even before pre-COVID. So, so that's on the borrower side. But at the same time, you need money to lend, and therefore the lender lending side. And uh, and that and the key risk is really credit crunch. That hey, investors don't want to lend money anymore because they are pessimistic about the macro markets, uh, because they are worried about their own job security, so and so forth. Right. And to that, we are very great, uh, grateful that. We have started a business model evolution since about one, two years ago, such that we are actually a pretty diversified sources of funding, which has enabled us to continuously land during this period of time when others may have faced some liquidity crunch. And I think, think the third impact is really as a platform, right? That for platforms that have not been able to continuously run the business, if say they're in a single market only, and, they are, and that market is, has a very terrible recovery, um, then their volume drops, their revenue drops as a result of that, their, their runway reduces. And in, a, in this market, it makes it really hard for them to, to survive, right? Um, and, and frankly, we do expect a consolidation of the fintech lending market, and which is frankly going to be to our advantage. And, and to that, I think we are very fortunate that because we, since, 25, since our inception, we have actively positioned ourselves as a regional platform and with a very diversified portfolio, that has enabled us to be a lot more resilient. So while Singapore may have, there may be a bit of an over, overfunding by virtue of the government support through the banks, Indonesia has actually recovered quite well, so is Malaysia. In fact, for every $2 that we lend, the Singapore, Malaysia government is co-lending $1 with us. So I think to that extent, we think that, and, and all these things, um, I think combined together, even though net-net, um, we, have, we have right out of the, the a near term in a crisis quite well, but frankly, we do think that it's still a relatively painful experience, but we, we feel that uh, by being able to manage this uh, crisis in a, in a good way actually has prepared us um, way better in the medium term to, to scale up in a very sustainable way, really transforming from a fintech startup to a fintech firm, profitable fintech firm. Great. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for that, Kelvin. Lars, you know, we've just got an avalanche of questions that we really have to get into. So um, can we move over to rapid fire, please? Sure. Let, let's let's uh, open it up for, for Kelvin and Pin. Uh, rapid fire, I'll throw a question at you. And it's just, it's normally a left, right, uh, black or white, uh, yes or no question with maybe a one sentence explanation, why you think that way. So let's let's kick it off. Fintech. Uh, is there no more space for smaller players um, since Grab and Ojex and Ovo and, and everybody else is, is flooding the space? No more space for smaller players or, or latecomers? Pin? No, absolutely not. Okay. There is space. Yeah, there is a lot of space. <laughs> Otherwise, what's left for you to invest? I get that. Yeah, I hope there is. <laughs> Calvin? Yes, there is space, but scale does matter in certain verticals. Okay, and and I saw you just partnering with some of the big players, Razer FinTech, who just announced partnership uh, for SME lending uh, a few days ago, right? Good, yeah, and that's ex that's explicitly for Malaysia, so it has nothing to do with our digital bank license in Singapore. Okay, good. Uh, regulators, please notice. Good. Um, next question. And Do other partners, please know Kelvin is open in Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, <laughs> but do it quickly. <laughs> um, digital banking. Right now, is it more dressed up digital marketing and consumer experience hype um, or, or uh, on the surface? Or do banks really want to move the needle um, with their core systems? So the whole kind of digital banking part, is it just surface makeup and, and you know, changing the, the coat of paint? Or is it really at the root cause changing the way banks, banks go? Root cause change or just makeup? Pin. 
it depends on which country, um, but I would love to think that it will be a more root cause change in 10 years from now. Kelvin, as applicant for one of the digital banking licenses in Singapore, I'm sure you, you're on that side, but generally, what's your take on that? Root cause change for our digital bank? I'm not sure about the others. <laughs> good answer, good answer. Um, next question. Since the Wirecard collapse, um, is it a boost for new payment, payment platforms, or is it actually two steps back uh, for fintech because trust has been damaged? Kelvin, you have to go first on that. Actually, I think it's a, it's a, it's a boost because I do think that it, payments have some room for consolidation, uh, at least in Southeast Asia. So I think that having a higher bar actually does help uh, for the overall uh, maturity of the market. Cool. Finn, trust boost. damage and two steps back or accelerator? Boost. It means, you know, the scale player can one day fall, so it's always good for innovation. Boost. Always boost. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, rapid fire, um, traditional and solid payment network players like Visa, MasterCard, UnionPay, will, will they steadily fade away or will they have a strong role to play in the future of fintech? Like the MasterCards, Visa's steady, steady fade away or big, big role to play? Kelvin? A big role to play. Frankly, okay. they, are, they, are they are very major collaborators of a lot of fintech players. And they're really going down the platform play, right? Yeah. Pin. Same, absolutely. Big role. You're already seeing them do it. In fact, full okay. disclosure, we have a partnership with, with Visa. So, <laughs> 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 it's a win-win opportunity. So, so, so again, guys, get in quick if you want to partner with Kelvin. And uh, <laughs> Lars, shall we move into the pitch? The pitch with Chris. <laughs> so, uh, this is uh, the favorite uh, part of um, the startup audience that we have, which is typically 30% uh, of the audience. And Pin, if I want to get part of your $10 billion, what do I need to say to you? Interesting. First, um, in insights that can lead to a very big impact um, to, I think, you know, show a founding team that complements one another um, and how you guys can come together um, to work together. And then the third thing, I also look for willingness and ability to spar on ideas with me. Um, I think, you know, by statistics, our relationship should last longer than you and your wife's or your husband. So, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that, um, yeah, we can work well together and we help each other grow. Wow, that's, that's so attractive, all the startups out there, right? So you've got $10 billion plus someone that wants to be there with you longer than your marriage. Excellent. So for that bargain, what do we need to be careful not to say to you? I mean, what are some of the you know, things that have maybe gone wrong <laughs> in your life as an investor that uh, startup founders have said to you? Um, I have xyz fund trying to invest can you give me an answer in two days on my first meeting i think for me it's just let's build a relationship early right like let's not talk um, um always about funding yeah yeah fantastic one inflection here you know obviously this year has been very different um has your uh you know outlook in terms of what you hear from a pitch maybe changed this year compared to last year not really. I think mm. for, for, for venture as an asset class, it's generally quite long-term. So a short-term mm. impact from COVID doesn't really impact as much. I think it's the same. Fundamentally, 
an early stage, we're just about finding founders who can find insights and drive the change. I, 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 it doesn't change too much. Um, mm, right. Thank you. Pin. And, um, you know, Kelvin, apart from if you're Asian, you better finish Harvard. Um, what else should you do to be successfully fundraising? Uh, you know, funding societies hasn't got a lack of excellent names on the cap table. What do you think has really worked in your journey for the aspiring fintech startup founder, please? I think, frankly, we got really lucky. Um, and statistically, it's proven that the biggest driver for success is really timing, right? So why we knew that we needed to start in 2015, even while in school, because if we were late by six, 12 months, I think we would miss the market. Uh, and frankly, players who have started later, we have managed to create such a gap, such, uh, such as could be meaningfully harder for others to overtake. But I think that if I may share perhaps what the feedback of our investors, so after they invest in us, usually we ask, hey, dude, why do you invest in us? Um, not we usually don't ask before that. But once we take the money, the money is banging. We ask them, right? So I think one mm. of them said that, hey, you all were very aggressive in terms of execution, uh, but very conservative in terms of uh, compliance as well as credit risk management. And I think that uh, to me is more of a, hey, there's a founder founder problem fit that uh, for this particular business. Whereas another investor has talked about, hey, big market, booming industry, uh, uh, market leader um, seems like it seems like a, the team to back. So. So I think those are those turns out to have worked out quite well for us. But I think one thing that I do want to caution is that, um, interestingly, while last time there used to be a Series A, there's always this hey, fun, uh, value of death when it comes to Series A, Series B, but it's gradually moving towards a uh, venture growth stage in B and C. And I think that's where PIN, interestingly, is coming in at a very sweet, good sweet spot, or even Sequoia, because they were, Sequoia Capital comes in a very good sweet spot, whereby more and more startups are bigger than venture, but smaller than PE. Uh, PE range and uh, and that that is something that I do encourage a lot of founders to to prepare ahead of time to not be caught at that value of that uh, new value of that in service Asia. Mm, great, thank you. And you know maybe what we should talk about as well is some of the thematics. I mean, yes, acknowledge your points around uh, you know timing and and certainly your timing was good because we've looked at it. You know there was Lending Club, um, then the you know same founder of that went on to do Diarong in China, and that was really before a meltdown. So. You know, how did you actually deal with this issue as you continue doing what you're doing and obviously had conviction, but, you know, the what's opposite of so many companies is, you, you know, your, um, I guess, rough comparators, and of course, that's not correct because you are different, um, we're not doing so well in other markets. And how do you deal with that in terms of, you know, your investor, uh, your ongoing investor dialogue? Sure, frankly, I think that there are really two two factors that make it quite different, right? It's not like, hey, it works in US, it works in Southeast Asia, no, but there are actually two fundamental factors. One is a market factor, one is a business model factor, right? I think fundamentally from a market perspective and um, the, I think uh, Southeast Asia is meaningfully more conducive when it comes to FinTech credit compared to the other markets. Um, and I think that interestingly is being statistically proven uh, by one of the research paper published by BIS quarterly, quarterly review, I think late last year or so, whereby it indicated there are really three key drivers towards FinTech credit. First is GDP per capita, of which Southeast Asia is either high or is fast growing. Number two is learner index, which is really an uh, index for, for banking level, banking competition. And the fact that Southeast Asia banks have one of the highest ROE indicates the level of competition here. And the third one is really suitability of regulations. 
of which we are very fortunate to enjoy the high side benefit from the other markets and hence the regulators have actually proactively regulated the market and it's frankly pretty conducive. So I think that from a market perspective, I do think that Southeast Asia is uniquely conducive for fintech or fintech credit in specific based on the paper and, and, and that is very consistent with our observation. That's number one. I think number two is also that we do also think that from a business model perspective, we have really taken the effort to evolve a lot more quickly um, compared to perhaps some of our some of our peers in the other markets, and and that's also enabled us to 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 be to to have a shorter path uh, shorter path to profitability. So while some of the the listed players may not may have struggled to even become profitable after ten years, we we have we are we are on track to become profitable in a pretty short period of time. Um, so, so to us, it's really a combination of uh, both market as well as business that has differentiated uh, Southeast Asia compared to many other international peers. Thank you. That's wonderful. Now, Lars, we have an avalanche of questions. Why don't you help us get into them? Sure. Uh, first of all, big shout out. Thanks for our attendees, our friends from Faith and Dawas, Cathy Innovation, uh, all here, just to name a few. Um, and we'll kick it off with Arjun, if I'm not mistaken, from ByteDance, uh, who, who asking the question, will fintech companies be profitable in the near term? What will drive, what kind of models will be profitable sooner? Uh, Pim, you, you want to take it? Uh, because of course, Kelvin says mine will, but uh, maybe from an <laughs> investor point of view. I think the answer is that um, the larger fintech companies were forced to think more about profitability in the near term. And I do think they'll get either profitable or very, very close to that. Um, I think the funding environment is not, not going to um, last forever for them. I think the younger folks, um, you know, will, will still have a lot of room to innovate and, you know, make mistakes and um, grow their network. Uh, what will drive, what will drive, what kind of models will, uh, my, my take today is um, uh, some form of lending. So I think Kelvin's in a great market. Um, some, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, EKYC onboarding tools. I think those are also interesting, profitable spaces. Um, lead generation for banks. Um, I think that's very, very good. Some of the banks, some traditional banks today, you know, spend $200 trying to find a, uh, 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 customer, and I think that's just a very inefficient way to do that. So I think those are the three areas where I feel like could drive profitability. Good. So, so Kelvin, then um, let let's dive down into into your model. Are you already profitable? My country, yes, but once you factor in the tech, the amount of tech that we're investing, no. Um, so I think to to that question, frankly, we do reckon that the lending vertical. Has a higher, it has a shorter path to be profitable. In fact, if you look at the international models, it's not like all digital banks are equal. The ones that are very volatile based, frankly, they are quite far from profitability. Whereas you look at new bank in new, in Brazil or Brexit and so forth, or even after pay, the path to profitability is a lot shorter. Partly because it's lending based, right? But I think if it's targeting primarily from a I think to to buy to to buy the, at least in my view for for a company like ByteDance, um, consumer financing is probably the the path that has the shortest profit that has, has the nearest profitability. And frankly, the giants like like the BATs or the B can be ByteDance can be buy too. Uh, um, have a shorter path to it. Um, we do. It's also partly why we have consciously chosen SME financing rather than consumer financing because we frank we do reckon that SME financing scale perhaps a bit slower. But I think that the key success factors is quite different such that we do feel confident uh, in terms of our path to profitability as well as defensibility. Okay, fantastic. Um, let's move on to one uh, question uh, also for Kelvin from from Edward Tan. There are a number of established digital banks um, in the in the UK. 
Monzo, Atom, N26, Starling, Revolut, do they pose a threat in the event of an expansion to Asia? Um, or do you see them more as potential collaborators? Um, or are we getting the frenemies kind of answer from you? I think if they have time to look at Southeast Asia, uh, I think that they will be great collaborators. But, but frankly, we do see that um, because of certain models, um, oftentimes the US and European players are a bit preoccupied in their current markets. It's more actually interesting to see that it's the Chinese internet banks that are coming down to Southeast Asia a bit more, frequent, uh, more frequently. And I think that they could be very interesting uh, competitors depending on which uh, approaches that they, take, that they take. Okay, cool. Um, one more question then it's over to Chris. Um, so to both of you, in that situation, and we talked about fintech profitability, um, expecting uh, the majority is expecting 20% uh, at least of traditional banks to, to be in, 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 in deep trouble. Um, so, so how can traditional banks respond uh, to that situation? Um, is it only with, with partnerships like with, with the funding societies or those uh, that are just worried about cannibalization are basically doomed or, or some are actually fine because their niche technology doesn't matter. What, what's your take, Pin? Um, two things. One is definitely uh, innovate within their own organization. Um, I think the best then, you know, VCA, K-Bank in Thailand does a very good job of just setting aside huge sum of money, hire the best talent, the young folks, right, and let, allow them, give them free space to innovate. Like in Thailand, you can walk up to any ATM machine and just use a mobile phone and withdraw money. Like, I think they are doing it. Um, and then the other thing is, I think traditional banks need to come to the table and you know, negotiate or collaborate and talk about, you know, um, how everybody can work together. Like, if they're just all still like, this is my family business, this is how I want to run it, I'm just going to conquer it myself, I, I think they, they'll be left behind. So I think the best ones are the ones that, you know, come to the table, talk to the regulators, lobby, innovate, um, you know, work with fintechs. I think those are, that's how they should respond. Uh, Calvin, you're on the fintech side. So now let's put the Wall Street view uh, against that. Uh, what can the traditional banks do to, to respond to that situation and don't want to be the extinct dinosaur dinosaurs? Firstly, I frankly don't think that they will extinct. In fact, I think that we'll be expanding the pie together. Uh, and number two, please partner with the fintech players. Because <laughs> frankly, so, so I do, I do, I can see and I sense that there is a certain sense of threat when we speak to executives within the banks um, or, or not, but I genuinely think that we are not a threat. It is the one that is raising $118 billion uh, uh, in IPO that is a threat to the traditional banks, right? We small fintech players are actually better collaborators um, in, in this particular process. Okay. And I, I noticed that especially in, the, in your space, the, the lending space for SMEs, uh, for a lot of traditional banks, it's a very unattractive space because their cost structure didn't match the potential benefits and they're actually happy to partner in, in, in some markets with players like you, right? Yes, I think frankly in different, the, the banks have different responses and, and attitude in different markets. Um, so, so far we have always taken a push of partnering at least one bank and of two banks in each of the market. In fact, I think we were very fortunate in 2016, we were the first bank, first P2P to have ever partnered with a bank. And that, in that time it was, it was DBS Bank and apparently it was a big deal. Um, and it was reported on Bloomberg and was translated to 16 languages, blah, blah. Uh, so it was trending at that point in time. 
Um, so 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 we, we have been always trying to partner with uh, with with banks, and in recent times we have also raised uh, our Series C with uh, Bank Rakyat Indonesia participating in it as well, which is one of the biggest state-owned uh, bank in Indonesia. So so we always see banks as collaborators, but also we recognize that um, we also need to a bring things on the table, not just saying that hey partner for us and get do charity, give us access, but really bring something on the table. And number two is that. Um, knowing the KPIs for the different stakeholders uh, within the organizations um, to, to drive, drive partnerships. Because we recognize that um, even sometimes the banks at the heart is within the body is weak, right? So, so we need to really facilitate some of these conversations and do go the extra amount to make any partnership work. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you, Lars. And, you know, just back on to the topic and a couple of questions that we got coming in about, you know, embedded finance. I mean, everyone's actually going to, you know, become a bank or a lender of some sort, you know, e-commerce companies becoming banks, property marketplaces becoming banks, uh, supply chain players becoming banks. Um, you know, Pin, is everyone just going to become a bank in the end? I, I hope not. <laughs> uh, I think everyone in, uh, in the near term would try. I think it's not easy to be a bank. I don't think, you know, lending algorithms easy to do, uh, I think. Um, but in the near term, you know, as we think about monetization, it was, it's the easiest, right? Oh, let's just lend, right? Like, you know, it's 36%. I, I think um, in, if you look further out in a decade from now, I think you will see specializations, right? Like e-commerce, just sticking to e-commerce, continue to build value and create value there. FinTech players do what they're good at and stay there. Yeah. So you may not see these verticals such as e-commerce and supply chain guys being all in one, having yeah. all the services, but what you yeah. might see is them being distribution partners, for example, of the product of the banks. Correct. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And then the other one is, and maybe, you know, to you, Kelvin, outside of your sphere, uh, what do you see as, you know, some of the next pieces in the fintech space uh, compared to what we've seen before? You know, if we think about what's happened, the first move was actually uh, digitizing the distribution of financial services product, right? Comparison sites, you know, et cetera, actually finding product. The second has been actually, you know, the, the, the production of better product, right? Um, using the data, the credit assessment, actually providing products that, that weren't there. What are we looking at next in the horizon, apart from a bit embedded finance that maybe not enough people are thinking about? Yeah, third part, the third, third, third phase in our view is really the integration of the various data sources, right? But the reality is that the first two phases have happened with the, with the overall data infrastructure in each of the countries not having kept up. Um, and it takes time for this infrastructure to keep up because you can't, be, you can't, can't go into digital banking um, in isolation, right? Um, the, the whole overall macro environment and infrastructure of the country needs to catch up as well. And increasingly, increasingly, we are seeing that happening. And to the extent that happens, it allows actually integration of various information to um, to, to come up with insights that previously are not, are not possible. Um, so, so some has, has called it uh, embed, uh, embedded finance, which is something that frankly we have been doing for some time. Um, but, but I do think that to do it well, it will take some time to, to, for, for, for actual uh, decisive results to materialize. Interesting. So, you know, when we think about the subject of the topic, you know, it's not really necessarily Silicon Valley or Wall Street, but a bit of both. And then even there, 
it seems like the flavor is it's more like actually Beijing and Bangalore <laughs> uh, versus Silicon Valley and Wall Street. I mean, Pin, given your experience in India and China, we get your points around hyperlocalization. But, you know, is there anything around the US model that we're going to see here compared to what we've been discussing so far? Uh, never really a direct copy. I mean, if you consider just the plumbing, there's no, in most of Southeast Asia, you can't do direct debit to banks. Um, so you, your credit card penetration has been extremely low. Uh, I think we might even skip that you know, whole credit card process. So I'd say um, it will be rare to, to, it will be unlikely that um, you'll see a direct, um, uh, uh, direct copycat model, um, just because fundamentally the data sources in the US, you have credit scores that goes back a lifetime of um, every individual that does like this. So fundamentally quite different. Right, and Kelvin? I, it is something we've thought about for some time, right? Because the the conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley is that, hey, you focus on one thing and you do it 10x well compared to the others and you win, right? But I think that in Southeast Asia, it's very, very different, whereby first mover advantage channels are, are very, very important. Um, you do need to be 10x better. You just need to be 1.1x better because we're solving an access, financial access problem and not solving a competitive uh, problem challenge, right? Um, the reality is that... Um, it is a bit of a situation, it's a blue ocean such that, hey, you do need to compete, but you just need to make sure that you don't get drowned by the waves along the way, right? So, so to us is that, hey, um, it's very important to go broad um, before going deep as uh, in Southeast Asia, very similar to what you see in your India and China, as opposed to say, in the case of US uh, and Europe, whereby you try to be a specialist and try to go deep, um, but the market in Southeast Asia is not deep enough for you to penetrate with a single product. Hey, Lars, you know, this has been so much fun with so many questions that we haven't answered. I think we actually need a part two of this. Yes, Lars? Absolutely. But only if you go back into your dungeon. <laughs> I'd have my toys. Pin, Kelvin, thank you so much. And, you know, if I think about um, what Pin said, uh, which was, uh, uh, you know, great. Um, for me, you know, your soundbite is, I want a relationship with you longer than your marriage. Excellent. <laughs> um, unbelievable uh, proposition. And, you know, Kelvin, um, I'm not sure how to say this, but it was, it was, it was, it was, it was excellent. Uh, I can't pick which one. So for you, there's two, right? It's either, um, you know, my parents are Asian, so I wasn't allowed to drop out, or I'm not that smart, so I couldn't drop out of Harvard. But either way, I just love it. And, you know, Kelvin, everyone loves your amazing humility. And, you know, congratulations on um, being the biggest and the brightest, making such an impact and, and, you know, just extending your track record. At Southeast Asia, we are here for our tech entrepreneurs and investors. Our 10th episode. Lars, can you believe it? <laughs> Um, no, I can't. You know, we started, uh, we wanted to do a podcast series for those that don't know that we were discussing for the longest time. Um, and we wanted to meet together, have a great conversation, then COVID hit, and we were stuck with webinars. Um, and I think that, you know, like uh, so many times, uh, COVID was the accelerator to get something great happening. Yeah. And you know what? We're still friends. So that's great. Uh, because of the circuit breaker, we couldn't see each other in person. I think that helped. <laughs> and for our 10th episode, we are simply so delighted to mention that the topic will be unicorn breeding, featuring none other than Grab, Southeast Asia's largest unicorn, and Ninjavan, Southeast Asia's next unicorn. If you're new to the Southeast Asia Connect webinar series, your email has been added to our mailing list so you can stay informed on our upcoming episodes. 
also, you can find replays at southeastageconnect.com. And as of this week, you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and YouTube. Most importantly, thank you to the listener community out there. You could have been anywhere else, but you chose to spend your time with us. And it is only together that we can support our entrepreneurs as they harness technology to create a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm Chris Tran signing off. Lars? Thank you very much, Kelvin, Pin, Chris. Everybody have a wonderful October ahead. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody.